Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. The monster next door. The super nice person who turns out to be an angry, violent, murderous beast. Truth is stranger than fiction sometimes, and I think that's why people really love and are engrossed by true crime stories. I'm excited today to have with me Josh Mankiewicz. He's a Dateline NBC correspondent, Dateline, the longest-running show on NBC primetime. And it's been around that long for a reason, because people love hearing these stories. It's like we're really fascinated by the deceptions that people can weave on, on one another. So I had a conversation with Josh. We talked about Dateline and the stories they tell, and also which victims get their stories told. Which stories do we find most compelling? Here I am with Josh Mankiewicz. Welcome, Josh, to The Tanya Acker Show. Thank you so much. Great to see you. It's great to see you. Why is Dateline so popular? What do you think explains the popularity of the show? It is, to some extent, it's sort of lightning in a bottle. I mean, I think when when I came here 25 years ago, the show had been on a couple of years, it didn't occur to me that I would still be working here a quarter century later. I got here in 95. In 2005, we sort of changed the focus from kind of a general interest news magazine with three or four stories in an hour to true crime. And that clearly made a difference with the audience because you could tell that people were captivated by that. And that was sort of the beginning of the interest in true crime that now is continuing and now has all kinds of other people doing it too. So I think that was part of it. There's another part of it, which is, I mean, I've been in TV and in TV news for 45 years now. This is a phenomenally talented group of people that we're working with here. And the success of Dateline really has more to do with the people that you don't see on camera. That's part of why this works. These people are really great at this. But clearly some of it is that we latched onto true crime at the right time. And we're telling those stories in a respectful but interesting way. And I think that works for people. When you say respectful, what do you mean by that? We always draw a line between the storytelling and the story. The storytelling is the fun part of this. We make maybe the obvious suspects seem like maybe only one of the suspects, or we have some fun telling you a story in which it looks like it's this guy. It looks like it's that guy. Wait, it's that guy who we didn't even think about. That sort of leading the audience around corners and the big dateline twist that people have come to expect, that's the fun part of telling these stories is keeping the audience guessing. Because we don't say at the beginning of the broadcast, this is the story of a guy who was accused of killing his wife, but then it turned out it was the next door neighbor. She'd been having an affair with him and nobody knew about it. Well, we don't do it that way. We're going to lead you very slowly down that path. But in the end, we're going to tell you what happened. That's the storytelling. But the other part of it, the part that requires so much respect, is the story, because there's nothing fun about that. These are people's lives we're talking about, and we're talking about the worst thing in almost all cases that ever happened to them. You meet these victims. They're not going to get over this. There's no, like, let's move past this. Let's go on. Losing somebody that you care about to cancer is terrible. 
losing somebody unexpectedly to violence is something that a lot of people find themselves forever changed by. And so when we tell that story, yeah, we can have some fun in the way we're telling it to you, but we've got to be respectful of the victims and those families and that story. Because in a lot of cases, that person's story is only going to be told on Dateline. Like on the local evening news in Cleveland or Saginaw or Fresno or wherever they live, there's going to be a little tiny squib about it. Maybe if there's a local paper where they live, there'll be a tiny bit more coverage. But generally, these are not famous people that we're covering. And that story that we're telling is frequently the only time that that story is going to be told in any kind of depth. How do you decide which stories to tell? Because it is a really interesting convention of your show that you don't follow the headline necessarily. Like recently, you've been digging into more cold cases, but sometimes the stories that we see on Dateline, it's not the front page national news. So how do you pick? No, I don't even really want the front page national news story because everybody's covering that. So unless you have some giant step forward on OJ, Casey Anthony, insert name of well-known murder case here, Robert Durst, right? People kind of know what's going to happen. It's a completely different experience when you're dealing with people that nobody's ever heard of. And those stories are every bit as interesting and every bit as current as the stuff on the front page, but they don't get any play. So how do we pick? We need stories in which there's a little bit of an arc. If someone is killed and the murderer, who is the obvious suspect, is arrested an hour later, that makes it a pretty tough story to tell if it turns out that that guy actually is the murderer. If it turns out later that isn't the murderer and they got to drop the charges and go in some other direction, that becomes a much more interesting story for us. So we're looking for something that's got a, a story that we can, like, lead you around a couple of corners in. We're also looking for stories in which, you know, we're not paying anybody. The only reason people are on Dateline is because they want to be. So families don't want to cooperate, or if in rare instances they want to get paid, which almost never happens, then we can't do it. You never pay anybody. You never pay for any story. No, no, we don't. The idea is that it changes the story. Like if you're paying somebody, you're, you're encouraging them to give you a better story. And I don't necessarily want the better story. I want the real story. So generally in journalism, you don't pay for stories. We certainly don't. Also, we're incredibly cheap. So that would <laughs> mitigate against that also. But uh, We're looking for people who can tell their story really well. We're looking for stories that are going to have some sort of resonance. And it's hard to say exactly what that is. But, you know, I told the story a week ago Friday of a woman here in Los Angeles, LaJoya McCoy, who vanished. Nobody could quite figure out where she was. Her family wasn't sure at first whether she had disappeared in some ominous way or whether she was just trying to sort of unplug and get away. And so there was a little bit of a delay as to whether or not they wanted to go forward and tell the cops. And at one point, the mom called the cops and the cops said, well, we went over to her house and everything looked okay." And the mom was like, all right, then you know what? Let's wait a couple of days. Maybe she'll call me back. Maybe she's just angry at us or not wanting to talk with us. So One of the interesting parts of the story was sort of that kind of delay that families go through. Like, do we admit that there's something terrible happening here and we want to go forward? Are we thinking like, maybe this will turn out okay, which is a normal reaction. It's one that almost everybody has. Like, eh, maybe they'll just come walking through the door and I won't have to worry about this anymore. So we did that. 
then it turned into a story about something that we cover all the time in one form or another on Dateline, and that's domestic or intimate partner violence. Because she was seeing a couple of guys, she had this difficult but working, it seemed, relationship with her ex, who was the father of their kids. And then she was seeing these other guys, and she would post their pictures on Facebook. She was dating, and she was pretty happy about it. And she didn't say who they were. And so the cops were trying to figure out, okay, this guy who she talks about, who she's clearly just started seeing, is this the guy we should be looking at? And who is that? We don't know who it is. So there was some of that going on because she didn't name the guy. She just took a picture of him. So that was one of those stories in which was very hard to tell who was telling the truth and who wasn't. Very quickly, the cops zeroed in on who it was. It turned out it was her ex and that this was all about domestic violence and that this guy had beaten her up before and he'd assaulted her and he terrified her. And she was convinced that he was following her. She was convinced that he was slashing her tires. They'd been together. They had these kids and then they split up. She never looked back. He never wanted to let her go. I mean, it's a story like out of the domestic violence battered woman's handbook. They weren't living together anymore. So she had every expectation this guy was going to leave her alone. But of course, he didn't want to leave her alone. And the more successful she was and the happier she was, and the more it was clear from looking at her Facebook page that she was spreading her wings, the angrier he got. And they found a bunch of writings of his, which made that abundantly clear how he was disrespected and he didn't like the way she was talking to her. And he didn't like the way she was conducting herself in front of the kids as if like dating in front of your kids is some kind of like horrible sin. That all sort of made clear what had happened. And then in the end, he got arrested and he's serving a colossal amount of time for that. But it, one of the things in the story was that two days after she disappeared, she had an appointment with an alarm company to come to her house and put an alarm in because she was protecting herself. So do you, as a journalist, but also as a human being who's now seen and told so many of these stories, do you sometimes have to stop yourself from jumping to what seemed to be the obvious conclusion? Look, checking yourself is a good rule in journalism, whether you're covering the White House or the city council in Memphis or murders. I mean, you should always take your own biases into account and think about what you're assuming for a minute. Yeah, that is a problem. Sometimes you just want to shake your head at some of these stories. I certainly do. I mean, sometimes you hear these stories and it's like, wow, it's like these guys took a course in this. He's just like the guy we did last month. Who's just like the guy we did a year ago. You see in this job, this tremendous wave of violence in this country, so much of it against women, so much of it by men, so much of it the result of relationships that didn't go the way they were originally intended or the way at least one party thought they were going to go. And it is something we see all the time. I actually think there's not nearly enough coverage of domestic and intimate partner violence because it's somewhere in nearly every Dateline story we do. I mean, I went to Phoenix a couple of years ago to go to the funeral of a friend of mine. He was a psychiatrist, Steve was. And he was killed by a guy who he'd done a court-appointed evaluation of like eight years earlier. And that evaluation resulted in the guy not getting custody of his son after a domestic violence incident. And years later, we don't know exactly what it was, this guy, something in this guy snapped, and he decided to go even the score. So he found Steve, he killed him. 
Then he killed a bunch of other people who, like, he went to the lawyer's office, and the lawyer who represented his wife wasn't there, so he killed some other people in the office. And he went to the psychiatrist's office who treated their kid, and the psychiatrist wasn't there, so he killed the guy that she shared an office space with. And then eventually Phoenix police closed in, and the guy killed himself. But wrapped around that story of my friend's murder was domestic violence. That's, like, how it started. That's how it ended. That's what was going on here. And the system's failure to sort of take that into account and to deal with that in Phoenix, just like in jurisdictions all over the country, is one reason why all those people got killed. And the wife in that case, she survived and their kids survived because she knew what was coming. She was a doctor and she had a lot of money and she was able to hide herself, you know, hire protection uh, and, you know, get other homes and keep her movements and her kids' movements hidden from her ex-husband. A lot of women obviously don't have those resources. So you're digging into these stories that really explore dark parts of people, dark social tendencies in terms of, you know, the way people violently express power and try to wield it. Real tragedies, has it changed you? Do you feel that your job and examining these really sad, tragic moments, has it changed your outlook in any way? You can't do this job and not feel anything because you're seeing, as I said, people, you know, talking about the most horrible thing that ever happened to them. And it's horrible. You don't see these people and think like, wow, you're really overreacting to this. You see some terrible things in this job. Most reporters do if you're covering any sort of level of like, you know, law enforcement. So yeah, you have to find some sort of emotional distance when you're doing this job because when you're interviewing people and they start to cry, like sometimes I feel like crying too, but you can't do that. You're telling the story and you need to like be able to step back enough, but you don't want to step back so much that you don't feel anything. And you're sort of saying to them, hey, come on, let's go, let's finish this. Generally, when people start to cry or get upset during an interview or get choked up, I will say to them, you, you want to take a break here? Let's wait a little bit, you know? Can you think of a time when you had to take a break because you were so upset about something that you were hearing? When I was interviewing my friend's fiance in Phoenix. I mean, I went there to go to his funeral. And then the more we learned about the story, I ended up doing that story about his death and the murders of these other people for Dateline, because it was a cautionary story of like, what can happen? I mean, this was a woman at the center of that story who had, not only had she done everything right, I mean, she prosecuted, she changed her address, she did everything that person could reasonably be expected to do. And this guy still came after her and didn't kill her, but killed a lot of other people. And that was when she had you know, tremendous resources and the presence of mind to protect herself and her kid, and still all kinds of things went wrong. So that was a great warning to everybody. I mean, like, like, look, I mean, it's widely known that in domestic violence situations, the day that you're most in danger is the actual day that you're leaving, the moment that you're leaving, because that's when he's losing control. Okay, but in this case, she got out. She moved. She left. He didn't know where she lived. She'd hidden herself in a bunch of different houses. And this still happened. That was a cautionary tale. And when I was talking to the woman who was the, the fiance of my friend, I mean, yeah, that was heartbreaking. It was. But again, if you're not feeling anything in these, these situations, then it's time to get out. I mean, you don't want to be so hard-boiled that you don't feel a thing. So you once pushed forward with an examination into the role that race played in telling the stories yes. of missing people. Tell me about that. Well, this was a while ago. This was in 2005. 
we were doing, and everybody in TV news, all the morning shows, all the news magazines, all the cable networks were doing a tremendous amount of coverage of what was known inside the business as damsels in distress. And it occurred to me at the time that if you watched TV news in America, you would have been under the impression that the only people missing in the United States were young, attractive, white women, because that's all we were covering, all of us. And in fact, that doesn't fit with statistics at all. No, Black people talked about this all the time, that they acted like yeah. the rest of us just never went missing. And when we did, nobody cared. <laughs> and that was our story. I mean, most of the missing people in America are men. And a much larger percentage are minority than the population at large. But we're not covering that group, or at least we weren't back then. We were doing only young, attractive, white, frequently blonde women. And we did hours and hours and hours of coverage. I'm not talking about doing it once. When I say we, I mean the TV news press writ large. I don't just mean Dateline. We were certainly party to that. So we talked about that. And then we found a woman who was uh, missing in, um, in uh, Spartanburg. And she was gorgeous, smart, interesting, had a big future. She'd been a contestant on American Idol. She didn't make it to TV, but she'd fallen out one of the earlier rounds. She had an amazing singing voice. And she was tangentially connected to some well-known people, like her aunt was married to a professional athlete. And, and this was exactly the kind of person who should be getting a lot of coverage. She was missing. Her name was Tamika Houston, except Tamika Houston was black. And when her family would call saying, hey, I see you're doing all these stories about missing women. We would love it if you would include Tamika in that because we can't find her and we're terribly worried. And the cops are, they don't seem to be able to find her either. And no one was calling these folks back. No one, not Dateline, not the Today Show, not CBS, not ABC, not any of the cable networks. So I did a story about that, about why do you keep covering Lacey Peterson and Natalie Holloway and you don't cover Tamika Houston? You're covering every missing white woman and no missing women of any other color. And unfortunately, all the presidents of all the network news divisions and all the cable news outlets, they didn't want to talk to me. The only guy who agreed was the guy who had hired me at NBC. And so I sat down with this guy who'd done me this huge favor by bringing me to Dateline, and I did an interview with him in which I asked him some questions that were not terribly pleasant for either one of us. But we got through it and he had his answers. But I mean, the larger issue, which he didn't try to argue with this, is sort of indefensible, which is you got to start covering more than just one kind of victim. And after that aired, I felt the ship of state journalistically move a little bit. I'm not going to say that things changed overnight, but things got a little bit better. We did a little less of one kind of story and we did a little more of other kinds of stories. I felt like maybe that thing made a difference. And we do less of that sort of thing generally now. There's not a lot of stories about the ongoing incremental coverage of somebody missing the way we did with so many of those stories back then. Most of the stories we do now on Dateline are stories that tend to have a beginning, middle, and end. They're already over. You don't wonder what happened to the person at the end of that. Although we are doing some cold cases now, which is a good thing because that might actually help. But yeah, I felt like maybe we had a little bit of an impact back then. 
You've been in the business for 45 years. You are a part of an institution where there are certain norms. And the norm is people just kind of take for granted that the only victims that audiences will care about are these, as you describe it, attractive white women. What made you want to change that? I was irritated and offended that we were only covering part of the news. And we were ignoring a big chunk of the audience. And it was a chunk of the audience that didn't look like me. And I was bothered by that. And so I proposed this story and David Corvo, who was then the executive producer of Dateline and still is, saw that story in the list of things that people were pitching and said, let's do that. And then not only did he give us the budget and the go ahead to do that story, but then there was a point where it was scheduled and it looked like it was going to get preempted because some sporting event like golf or Olympics or something was going to roll over us. And he moved that story out of Dateline that week so that it would be sure to run at a time when it wouldn't get preempted and the whole country would see it or would be able to see it. So he's, you know, he, he was definitely heroic in this. And it isn't just that I wanted to do it because me wanting to do things doesn't necessarily make them happen. But I got some support from the front office, which was great. And Neil Shapiro, who was the president of NBC News at the time, sat there and talked about it with me and forthrightly answered the questions, which I thought was also very courageous. And that's how it happened. But I mean, how did it originally happen? I thought to myself, I, I saw all those stories of those women who looked exactly like, and I just thought this is bullshit. 45 years in the news business yeah. you've been. We sometimes have a tendency to romanticize things that came before. So right now in a climate where people are loose with facts and the press is really under attack. Journalists are being regularly derided uh, in the media, sometimes just for doing their jobs. Are things worse now or is this simply another incarnation of one of those moments where we've been at it and we get mad at the press? Is it something different or is it a continuation of something that's always been there? It's both. It's worse in some ways, it's better in others. I mean, there's been about a 50-year campaign in this country by the right against journalists, against academics, against experts, against facts, against truth. Make up your own facts. Say them loudly. Say them again and again and again. Get your whole party on the message of the day. Both parties adopted that. Limit access to the actual newsmakers so that everybody has no choice but to use the speech that you give them or the photo availability that you get give them. When I started covering Washington and politics back in the mid-1970s, you could get almost anybody you wanted on television and ask them a question. There's less access now than there ever has been before. On the other hand, there's all kinds of other ways to reach the audience that didn't exist then, like social media. I mean, we're no longer dependent on somebody's availability to appear in front of a television camera to get news out of them and to ask them a question. Perfect example today. You and I are talking via Zoom. That was unheard of. So in some ways it's better, in some ways it's worse. The press has been under attack for a really long time. The efforts to delegitimize the press have been ongoing for a really long time. And you can see what's happening now is just sort of, you know, not even the end product of that, but a latest product of that. On the other hand, it wasn't too long ago that people were saying, oh, well, you know, newspapers are over. They're finished. They're so last century. 
so much of the really good work of the last four or five years has been done by newspapers and the people who work for them and their digital counterparts. So, I mean, I see a lot of things that are encouraging and I, you know, and I also see what's always come, which is you can't trust the press. They're making everything up. The current administration is delineating that a little differently. I mean, it would have been unheard of for a president to attack a journalist the way Trump's been attacking Kristen Welker, for example, over the last couple of days. That kind of thing has changed. But some things have remained the same over a long period of time. It's been going on for a long time. And you do have a really interesting vantage point on that because your father was Robert Kennedy's press secretary. Uh, You come from a very celebrated Hollywood family. Your brother, Ben Mankiewicz, is host of Turner Classic Movies. Your grandfather, uh, Herman Mankiewicz, wrote Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. Your great-uncle, Joseph Mankiewicz, also a celebrated writer. Did you feel a lot of pressure growing up to be extra great or do something really fancy? I, I don't think so. I ended up going into a business that sort of no one else had gone into. I mean, my dad had been a journalist. Herman had been a journalist before he became a screenwriter. My great-grandfather was a, a edited and published a German-language newspaper in Pennsylvania, which is where the Mankiewicz's came after they got here from Poland and Germany. So, I mean, in some ways, like, I'm a fourth-generation journalist. But, like, nobody else had ever really been in TV news. My dad was in it for a little while, but that's not primarily what he was known for. So I, you know, my brother and I sort of went into this other business that wasn't exactly the family business. I'd grown up around politics. I thought journalism was an interesting way to sort of observe politics without being part of it. I grew up watching the civil rights movement and Vietnam and Watergate on the evening news. All I ever wanted to be was a reporter. And now I have been one for all these years. So I'm pretty happy with that. I have not written a screenplay. I have not tried to direct or produce a screenplay. I'm leaving that part of the family business to many other people in my family who are all going to be better at it than I am. But did I feel a lot of pressure? I don't think I did. I read an interview with you and your brother, Ben, where you described one of the biggest misconceptions of your family was that you grew up rich. What's another big misconception? Because I think a lot of people might think that when you grow up in such a celebrated household that getting a cool job at a great news magazine is just a cakewalk. Disabuse folks of that notion, if you would. Yeah, well, I mean, when I started out all those years ago, and when I first went on the air at ABC, which was in the the early 80s, I heard that people were suggesting that, uh, you know, my family had set this up for me. And I remember thinking to myself, they can get me a job like this? This is great. (laughs) Like, why did I wait so long? I mean, like, yeah, I mean... You know, the name might get you in the door. I'm not going to tell you it doesn't have an advantage. It certainly has an advantage if you want to get your screenplay read. That probably it does matter. But, I mean, beyond that, like, you don't survive in this business, particularly now in this business in which there's, you know, significantly reduced budgets and and, and less opportunity than, than, uh, uh, than there was just a couple of years ago, unless you're earning where you are. And that's true of everybody. Yeah, it would be great if we were, this incredibly powerful Hollywood family, but we're not. We're just this kind of like, you know, Hollywood historical oddity. 
So tell me this, how do you think audiences have changed over the years? Because you talked about the fact that now we have all these platforms, right? Like before, you know, you said you could always get a politician to do an interview with you. Now you may not be able to get them to do the interview, but you can see them on Twitter. You will see their posts. But it really strikes me that that is this sort of pre-packaged presentation where people aren't necessarily getting information that people don't want to offer. I mean, are audiences becoming a little more settled in the idea that maybe they don't need to know everything? Do you think that people are less curious than they used to be? I think people are probably more curious than they used to be. And they're certainly more distrustful, and I think properly so, of official statements coming from everywhere, whether it's the mayor or the police chief or your senator or your president. I mean, this country's now spring-loaded to distrust any statement that anybody makes about anything. In some ways, that's good. In some ways, it probably isn't. There are people who will not take a COVID vaccine when it finally does come out, you know, in a couple of years or however long it takes, because there's some things people just don't want to believe. So that's not a good thing. People are intensely curious, and they don't understand when they can't get the thing that they want. I mean, we've done so much narrow casting out there that, you know, if you want a specific thing in your feed, you're going to get it. You want to know more about people who paint their houses red and live in the Midwest and raise roses. You're going to get that. And whose kids go to public schools. I mean, you're, you're, you can like narrow down the information that you're getting, whether it's entertainment or politics or sports or anything. So people want what they want, and they are irritated, I think, when they don't get what they want. And that's part of what's going on today. Everybody now is talking about the fact that there are algorithms set up on all of these platforms that will only deliver to us the things that we want to see and hear. How do we become better consumers? And even more to the point, how do we become better fact checkers? The only way as journalists to become better fact checkers is to work harder at it and spend more time at it and devote yourself to it, because ultimately, we don't have subpoena power or a badge. All we have is our credibility. So we need to safeguard that, and we need to work really hard at that. And we need to make sure that the things we say on the air and the things we print, the things we put online are not just defensible, but true and accurate and fair. And so, you know, when we're doing a story, I mean, one of the things we ask ourselves at the end of the story is, okay, we interviewed Tanya Acker in this. What's she going to say when this is over? Is she going to say, I was accurately represented? Or is she going to say, I can't believe I talked to you for an hour and a half and you only use this little thing? So, I mean, that's one of the things that you, you need to do. And you need to make sure that your finished product conforms not just with what you think is true, but what you learn and what you know and what you can prove. And another thing that we need to do is stop getting all our news from one place. If you're only watching Fox News, you're missing a tremendous amount of news. If you're only watching CBS or if you're only watching, or you're only reading the New York Times, there's some stuff that you're missing. Get your news from a broad spectrum of sources and keep your eyes open to what might be potential bias in the source that you're getting. That doesn't mean you shouldn't trust it. Doesn't mean discard it, but it means you know, listen with an open mind to things that you agree with and to things that you don't agree with. I mean, this seems pretty obvious, but yeah, we're in this environment now where a lot of people hear only what they want to hear. So before we go, Josh, there are a bunch of young kids at home now who 
aren't having the experiences, you know, that we had when we were young and wanted to test the world and maybe pursue journalism or go out and try to get a job at uh, some law firm. You know, there's a whole different uh, way in which these kids are growing up right now. What's your advice to a young person who is at home and very much wants to be a journalist, but doesn't know how to break out in the den? Because there's a lot of noise. How can a young person find their place in the midst of all this noise? I mean, you know, read as much as you can, write as much as you can. You know, writers write. There have never been fewer barriers to entry in journalism as there are now. There was no way for me to do a TV story back in 1975 when I first got out of this business. Other people owned the equipment, unions controlled who had access to that equipment. I couldn't pick up a camera and I couldn't get them to shoot an interview that I was doing. Other people controlled all the means of entry. Well, that isn't true anymore. You can shoot a story and edit it and voice it on your iPad and it'll be just as good as anything that's on the TV news. So you've got in your hands technology that will get you through the barrier that traditionally existed to young people who couldn't figure out how to even break into journalism. And there's all these places now, particularly if you don't mind not making a ton of money, there's a bunch of places that will take young people that haven't been on the air before that are anxious to learn about journalism and start learning about journalism on the job. And there's all kinds of stuff out there. You know, there's something that's covering your neighborhood right now. There's all sorts of stuff that didn't exist 10, 15, 20 years ago. Certainly didn't exist when I started. More opportunities to get one's feet wet than ever before. Josh Mankiewicz, I cannot thank you enough for your time. This is really fascinating. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Take care. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 